Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, almost here, round the corner technology. Uh, today I have Justin Newton, the CEO of NetKey, N-E-T-K-I.com. Uh, they have a blockchain-based solution that's um, pretty interesting that he's going to talk about. So welcome, Justin. How are you doing? I am doing great today. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Um, so, you know, I find it's always better to let... Uh, yeah, I always find it's better to let folks introduce their company and what it does. Uh, they seem, you know, they've they've got it down. So, tell listeners what NetKey does, please. Sure, no worries. So, uh, NetKey, uh, we're a company that started in uh, the the Bitcoin and blockchain space about three years ago, and what we were really uh, focused on from the beginning was trying to help remove barriers for the commercialization or mass market adoption of Bitcoin and blockchain. And uh, one of the first things that we really found that's been a big issue has been around digital identity, and in particular around how a digital identity is very context sensitive. And depending on what people are doing, there could be uh, you know, different requirements in that area. And so what we've been focused on is, is basically helping companies that are building blockchain solutions to uh, build a digital identity validation solution that can uh, meet the specific uh, legal risk and compliance requirements of the use case that they're building. All right. Well, and I guess, you know, let's talk about a particular use case and a particular example because it's <clears throat> Sounds a little bit general. What does that mean? Yeah. What's an example so of a like, use case and what are you doing? What, one of the areas that we do a lot of work in is around payments or around international money transfer, right? And if you think about, let's say, an international money transfer use case, of course, there's know your customer and uh, anti-money laundering requirements around that. And uh, while many companies in the space have done a good job of knowing who their own customer is, one of the challenges of a, a blockchain in this environment is that blockchains are by their nature anonymous or pseudo-anonymous. And so what we did is we built a solution that allows the, the counterparties in a transaction to share identity with each other in a way that allows the service provider, be it a money services business or financial institution or, or startup in the blockchain space, to be able to meet their compliance requirements around things like sanctions list or OFAC or other anti-money laundering needs. Okay, so how, for example, are you doing that without giving away, you know, your secrets, but how in that sure. particular example do you help? Yeah, no problem. So the, the first thing that we did is we built an, an open source and open standards-based solution that allows the counterparties in a transaction, so the sender and receiver, to open a secure encrypted channel between each other to be able to privately exchange data, uh, including identity data. And then we set up a system uh, based on the way that certificate authorities on the web work today, where uh, basically we take the users through an identity validation process or an onboarding process 
where we'll, for example, like check their driver's license and have them take a selfie of themselves and compare them and then check a lot of that against the back-end government databases and, and sanctions lists and other lists. And then, you know, once the person's come through as a, a validated user, we will issue them an identity certificate, which using uh, private key encryption, only they are able to share with other people. So basically by presenting that certificate on this encrypted connection, they can prove that they're the person on the other side. Hmm. So it's weird. So a company or an individual starts out with an appeal to the centralized um, you know, databases to verify their identity but then you're using a uh, decentralized protocol that's private to communicate that to someone else. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So basically what we do is, you know, we validate the user once. And after we do that, we issue those validated credentials directly to the user. And from then on, you know, they're in control of who and where they're shared. So third parties are dependent upon NetKey vetting people and I guess being transparent enough in how they're vetted, the other parties are comfortable that the identity is true, and then they can go transact and, and not worry. That's, that's absolutely the case. As a matter of fact, we based our solution on a digital identity standard that's been in use for over 20 years and already has, for example, case law and treaties and all kinds of other things like that behind it. Um, we did that because yeah, we believe... Yeah, yeah. We did that because for, you know, for AML or for things like, you know, legal non-repudiation, if people are like signing contracts with each other online on a blockchain or elsewhere, you know, you you really want to be certain that the identity that's being used is going to, for example, hold up in court or hold up with regulators or other people. And, you know, for that reason, because this was a risk and compliance tool, we didn't want our starting point to be that, hey, we've got this brand new form of identity that regulators could trust. Instead, we took right. one that we knew that they already had faith in and repurposed it and, you know, customized it for this environment. That's very smart. Um, do you know if most companies or people are even aware that there is a standard that um, is held up in court uh, for verifying identity in these type of transactions? Well, I mean, uh, it's something we're certainly doing everything we can to educate people on. What, um, do you have the names for the standards, you know, where people can get more info if they want, or at least, you know, let them know what these things are called? Sure. So one of the prime standards that we use here in the U.S. is something called FBCA, which is Federal Bridge Certificate Authority. And this is actually a form of digital identity that the uh, U.S. government, whether they be members of Congress or the FBI, or people working inside of the Veterans Affairs hospitals areas, et cetera, have used as digital identity since literally like the mid to late 90s. Hmm. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. I mean, you were smart enough to find something that's already out there and build upon it. That's fantastic. Yeah, because it's very smart that you're, um, you're using that because blockchain applications themselves, so far as I know, have not been tested in the court system. But if they're based upon something that has, that gives them a lot more veracity, you know? Yeah, and, and again, that's sort of part of the reason that we chose the standard that we did as a starting point was to really help risk and compliance people as, you know, as well as some of those that count on them to, to 
you know, at least have some more comfort around this part of the system where, you know, many other parts of the system that they're seeing are, are new to them. But yeah, so that's a great smart idea. That's very, very smart. Do you, have you seen any legal challenges to any uh, blockchain-based applications or not yet? I mean, you seem to be pretty uh, aware of what's going on at a higher level. That's why I asked. Thank you. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen any of those challenges come up yet. But it, if Do you, you think, think about it, we, a... we, we haven't really seen a lot of these, uh, these new solutions really hit production at any kind of scale yet. So I think a lot of, That's true. you know, there, there's frankly a lot of case law around blockchain yet to be discovered. Yeah, I think it'll be a very good thing when it is tested in court because it'll give everyone, a, you know, some guidance. Um, and I'm, I'm sure as uh, solutions become commercialized, it'll definitely happen soon in the next, in the next couple of years. So. I think Interesting. we'll certainly so any, see um, some of the first test cases for sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some other use cases. So you, we talked about, you know, uh, verifying the ID for financial transactions. What are some other interesting use cases that you think are pretty cool? Well, I mean, some of the other ones that we, yeah, some of the other ones that we see that sort of have some, you know, differentiated use cases, right? Uh, and, and these are all things I know that you've heard about happening on blockchain before, right? There's there's talk of using medical record systems, right? And then in the case of a medical mm -hmm. record system, you may not want to know just somebody's identity, but you may, for example, want to know that they have a medical license and that it's still in good standing. Or you may even know want to know what part, what healthcare groups they're a part of so that that information can be used as a way to automatically make decisions by that underlying system. And so there's cases where, you know, above and beyond the personal identity, going out and having to validate other attributes uh, about the person or individual as it pertains to the specific use case of the underlying blockchain. In the case of, for example, trading systems, it may be completely different information. Again, you may want some institutional identity, right? What institution is this person trading on behalf of? Um, you know, but you may not need to know actually who they are. In that case, okay, um, you know, and and then there's cases where uh, we're doing identification of the underlying institution itself rather than the individual, and we're actually just getting into some cases uh, right now that are very early on, um, where you know we're actually uh, doing uh, digital identity for machines. Right, where the machines can have associations of ownership both to people or institutions, but who are, you know, acting as independent agents on a network. Oh, what why would a we machine need a, a besides like a MAC address or a specific machine serial number, what kind of identity would the machine need? Well, I mean, for example, uh uh gosh, I mean there are use cases anything from sensors on networks, right? Things that are, uh, uh, you know, measuring things for the government, like measuring temperature or other atmospheric conditions, right? And so you want to know the sensor location. You need to know what agency is responsible for the sensor. You want to know, you know, other things about it like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Internet of Things kind of drives that in a big way. Okay. So if you had... Um a series of sensors, let's say um, the U.S.-Mexico border, and you had yeah. 500 remote sensors, you'd 
I guess you'd want each of them to be um, a known entity. You know, that's number 347, and you'd, the machine itself, would, you know, the sensor itself would have an identity, and you can track it, and all those sensors can interact with the blockchain, and you'd know which one is which. Yeah, and for example, you know, if that if that camera was, you know, recording its information to a backend system for storage later, you know, wouldn't it be great if the the camera itself could be signing that content in real time as a way to protect against tampering, right, by a third party externally? And so there, you know, and and so to know that a piece of information was absolutely collected by a certain machine because it signed it at the time that it was occurring, and you can tell that that recording hasn't been tampered with actually provides value, right? As a piece of the chain of evidence. So those are the those are those are the kinds of things. How do the machines, um, for instance, get their identity? Do you just assign it to them with a private public key? Or is there something physical about a machine, like its GPS location or other elements that give it a unique identity regardless that can be used? Um, generally, you know, you want to have some kind of, uh, if you're using it for the kind of use case that I'm talking about, which, again, is one that's a little off the edges of the map right now, uh, you know, it's, it's more around uh, giving the machine a private key because you're generally going to want the machine itself to be able to sign off on the validity of the data it's producing. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Any other, um, you talked about being able to transact with others where the parties don't know each other. And that sounds like it harkens back to, you know, a centralized authority um, that has vetted both parties so they can transact with each other, you know, anonymously to themselves. Is that, the use case you're talking about, or is it somehow different with your applications? Well, I mean, certainly there there is a case where people do, you know, people do go through a validation process with us when the digital identity is issued, right? Um, that's that's how it becomes a form of legal digital identity. But after that, right, how that's used and what decisions are made based on the information that the user has. That's really up to to the counterparties and the peers. Like we don't sit in the middle saying yes, this is a good transaction or no, this is a bad transaction, right? We we validate the information, we give it to the users, so they and whoever it is they're transacting with can use that to make whatever decisions they deem appropriate. Okay, gotcha. All right. So, um... Any other applications or technologies that you're working on besides the you know the vetting of IDs? Anything other interesting you're working on? I had heard, I'm not sure if this was you, but um, taking the actual addresses that make up a Bitcoin wallet, for instance, and converting yeah. them similar to uh, DNS into like a re rememberable, you know, addresses yeah, that, instead. That, that's certainly the that's the first product that we launched and one that's been out there for a couple of years now. And, uh, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, when we came into blockchain, what we wanted to really focus on was where do we see barriers to mass market adoption or commercialization? And certainly identity was one of those, but usability was another big one. And I'll be honest with you, like literally the first time I went to send a Bitcoin transaction, I looked at wallet addresses and said, oh, my God, something has to be done about these. And hmm. So a few weeks later, uh, you know, and I, I, I my co-founder and myself actually spent a little north of 20 years working in the Internet space. 
And so we were actually involved in, you know, from the, the, the early to mid-90s, involved in the early commercialization and mass market adoption there. And so uh, when we looked at this, we said, you know, this is, we, we've kind of been to this dance before. Actually, believe it or not, when I first started working on, on the Internet uh, part-time, uh, a lot of things still ran on IP addresses, right? Those numbers that are behind the scenes that no one really looks at. And, mm-hmm. you know, the domain, the domain name system was really just fully developing and being rolled out everywhere, you know, where we use the names today like Google.com and CNN.com. And so, right. you know, when I turned around and looked at what's happening in Bitcoin at the time, I said, man, like if I show these wallet addresses to like my friends or my mother, they're going to say, oh, Bitcoin, I'm never using that because it just yeah. looks scary and complicated. And, you know, on top of that, there's a whole bunch of practices that users are supposed to have in order to use these things correctly, right? Like you're not supposed to reuse an address more than once. And you're not supposed to share the same Bitcoin address with more than one person. And all these things are for both privacy and security reasons. But the system was built in a way where, frankly, if you look at the way users behave, they're going to copy and paste the same address over and over again. They're not going to remember what their address is because who could? It's this crazy 30-character case-sensitive alphanumeric string. And right. in a world where from very, the very beginning, uh, we believed that we were going to live in a multi-blockchain world, all of these things just made the problem worse and worse. And so by repurposing DNS and DNSSEC and building a wallet naming service, what we're able to do is give people an easy-to-remember name that's very similar to an email address or a website address that they can hand out to people who, when you know the person on the other side types that in, behind the scenes in the same way that your web browser does uh, with IP addresses, you know, we convert the wallet name to a wallet address. And you know, this has a few features around it that we think are, are pretty exciting in terms of usability, but also in terms of privacy and security. Um, first, you can take a single wallet name and list every single blockchain that you operate on behind that name uh, in, you know, when it's being set up. And this can all happen in an automated way behind the scenes for the user. And uh, the computer automatically figures out the right address to send to based on what blockchain you're operating on. So no longer does the user have to keep track of all these different things that they have to share depending on what blockchain they're operating on. They just share the same thing no matter where they're working. Second thing it so does. Look, one question: yeah. What does it look like? So what, you know, I have a Bitcoin address, yeah. a jumble. What does it look like? Your stuff. Yeah. So like uh, one of our partners is Bit down in the Caribbean. Uh, it's a company uh, that is working with the central banks down there to be able to actually put Caribbean currencies, national currencies, directly on the blockchain. And because they're looking at this as a service, you know, that's for everyday consumers, right, who, who are unbanked down there and who pay high fees to transmit money between islands and all this other crazy stuff, this is basically an end run on that, working with the local central banks. Uh, you know, they said, well, look, if we're going to pick the average, you know, consumer here, uh, we, we can't. We can't show them these wallet addresses and tell them about BIP32 and all this crazy stuff to use it correctly. We literally never want to show them a wallet address. And so when I, you know, when you sign up for an account at BIP, 
actually one of the first things they do as part of the onboarding process is have you choose a wallet name. And down there, the uh, Trinidad and Tr uh, Tobago, the TLD for down there is TT. So my bit okay. address, if you want to, if you want to send me money at bit, and I encourage everybody to send me money, is uh, justin.bi.tt. So how would someone do that using a traditional wallet? Yeah. So if you're using a traditional wallet today, uh, and it hasn't already integrated with our wallet name service, probably the easiest way to do it is we actually have a wallet name service Chrome adapter. So you can just go to the Chrome extension store and type in netkey, N-E-T-K-I, and that will allow wallet names to work with any, any web-based wallet. Hmm. Okay, and what, what is that again for listeners? Say it again. It's a, it's a Chrome extension. So if you go to like the Chrome okay. app store and type in netkey, N-E-T-K-I, it'll come up as the, oh. it usually comes up as the top choice. Okay, so it's called netkey. Okay, great. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. What about people that, um, you know, want to use a different address, their hierarchical wallet, you know, a different address for every transaction. Can your system yeah. handle that? It absolutely does. So it was important to us to nice. address both, you know, privacy and security from day one. And so, you know, behind the scenes, if your underlying wallet provider will support uh, HD wallets or BIP32, we absolutely do too that. So, you know, in that case, someone will type in a wallet name, and when they hit enter, they'll get an address, and, you know, they do their transaction. The next person that types in the wallet name will get a completely different address. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great that you can handle it, the latest and greatest. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you because I wanted to hear what, you know, an actual uh, address conversion looks like, but you're about to come to point two of what the, uh, the functionality of it is. Point two, you actually played a great straight man, was going to be that we plug into HD wallets so that you can generate a unique address for every transaction automatically. Oh, right. nice. And okay. so what, what, what that does is it automates privacy for people, right? With what today, people actually have to take extra steps in order to maintain appropriate privacy on blockchain. We automated it for you so that the user doesn't have to take an extra step. We just do the right thing by default. That's great. Yeah, I recently had to um, give someone one of my Bitcoin addresses, and for some reason I couldn't copy. You know, I had to like type it in manually, and I had to <laughs> stare at the screen like ten times and make sure each letter was right and cover part of it with my hand so I didn't see the wrong thing. And you know, yeah, you're still worried that it'll go to the wrong place. It's kind of funny. So I uh, probably one of my favorite stories about this is I was I was talking to a friend about this you know, about, about why we built wallet names and some of the challenges behind it, right? And, uh, you know, the other thing we try and take care of by default is security. So we plug in there to something called BIP70 or payment protocol, which basically works like SSL works on the web. So you type in a wallet name, and what you get back is that little green lock like you get in the browser and the validated identity, and the validated identity of who you're sending to. So that also plugs into that really? two-way identity exchange we talked about, right? So now the user experience can be, instead of like cutting and pasting that terrible address we were just talking about, right? They type yeah. in justin.bi.tt, they hit enter. And by the way, Bit isn't fully doing this yet. So they, this will not work exactly this way with them at this time. You type in justin.bi.tt, you hit enter. You get back the little green lock in your wallet and then you get my validated identity as the address you're sending to. Wow, that's great. Right? That's and so, really awesome. 
it, there we've also improved the security of your Bitcoin transaction because you can have confidence now that you're actually sending to me, not someone that's mm. pretending to be me or managed to like change a letter, you know, in the middle of an email. Yeah, definitely. Huh. How do how does someone first become a verified user? Is it it's Suneki, I would guess, right? Or is it another person? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that that's the we actually took the standard that was already there, one that was called BIP seventy or payment protocol, that would okay. allow the sender to know who the receiver was in advance of a transaction. And we extended okay. that to be BIP seventy five, which makes that uh identity exchange optionally two way. So now both sides can right. know who the other side is. Yeah, and quick question, referring back to the uh, Chrome extension, you know, when I asked you yeah. how does someone send it to the, you know, your vanity address, I guess you can call it, um, what about mobile? Uh, do you have a, an app for this, or is it uh, how to work on a mobile device? Uh, coming soon through some of our partners. Oh, for some reason, okay. So what form will it take? Will it be, um, do we have to go through a partner, or will there just be an app we yeah. can use? It'll actually be built into a few of the open source wallets. Are you are you able to disclose which partners are probably going to have it first, or no? Uh, you know what? I don't remember which ones off the top of my head. I have a confidentiality agreement with, so I'm going to hold off for now. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Well, how about timing on it? Do you think that's going to happen this year, or what? What's oh, definitely this year. Yeah, I think in the next couple quarters Great. is what we're looking at. Yeah. And then your technology, um, is it going to be across all cryptocurrencies or just Bitcoin or maybe yeah. the top 10 no. market cap? Or? No, we actually really built this, you know, because the way we do both wallet names and the way we do identity exchange actually works off chain and does it in a way that, that that way because it helps maintain privacy. But another mm -hmm. thing that it does is it allows our services to be completely blockchain agnostic where, you know, we work with Bitcoin, we work with, you know, altcoins, we work with private blockchains, we work with Ethereum, we can plug into Hyperledger Fabric. So it's a, it's a very kind of broad-based solution. As, as a matter of fact, with the identity solution today, uh, we actually have uh, a company that we're working with that wants to use the identity validation pieces of our solution and wants to use it as a way to exchange some uh, very specific pieces of data required around the consumer loan process. They're actually mm -hmm. not using a blockchain anywhere in their solution at all. I have a question that's, um, I hope it's not dark, but um, because you'll help verify identities, you know, uh, when it comes to blockchain, do you think that um, one or more governments may at some point, you know, try to pressure you to say, hey, you know, we want your data. We don't want you to let um, people know that you're giving it to us. Do you think that you may uh, be conscripted into, uh, you know, a purpose you don't want to be into? Uh, I mean, so a few things about that. So one, you know, if you look at both my co-founder and myself, we have a, a, a long history of fighting for privacy abusers and ensuring mm -hmm. that, that we have all practical protections in place in order to do that. Am um, I actually, you know, back, uh, God, 23 years ago now, 22 years ago now, I, I co-founded what became the largest trade association for Internet providers in the early days of the Internet and was also our public policy director. 
And actually the thing I'm probably proudest of during the time that I was actually acting as the industry representative, you know, to Congress and to regulators and things like that, was actually there was an early anti-spam bill that came across my desk that would have banned anonymity banned anonymity online. And I was pretty freaked out about that and managed to reach out to the, the congressman that had introduced it. And he and I, he his legislative analyst and I spent some time on the phone. And at the end of the call, they actually changed the language uh, wow. to make sure that that wasn't the case. Now, that bill is not, did not end up being one that passed, but the language that we crafted and put in there that protected online anonymity actually carried forward into future bills. And so, you know, protecting user privacy is something that has been, you know, part of my personal history for over 20 years now and something we want to ensure that we do the right way. And, you know, one of the ways that we help protect our, the privacy of the users is while we do need, obviously, to have some of their identity data in order to do the identity validation, once we issue the user the certificate, we have no visibility into how they use it. So I don't see the transactions that they're using it in. I don't know whether they use it at all. All I know is that I validated their identity and I handed the certificate to them that they could then use however they wished. And so, okay. you know, we, we did our best to minimize kind of what our view into that world was. Do you think that um, you may become like a passport in a sense uh, where individuals can go to you, get vetted, and then they can take these, uh, you know, these identity certificates, if you want to call them that, and um, go do all kinds of things that they want to do now because they've got a quote-unquote, you know, like net key identity passport. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we definitely believe that over time the uh, breadth of usefulness of digital identity is, is only going to grow, right? And particularly when you put that digital identity directly into the hand of the user to use how they choose to use it instead of, you know, leaving it in the hands of a company that chooses how they're going to use it on the user's behalf. And so, you know, I, I, I suspect that, yeah, if we sat here and had this conversation five years from now, we would see a bunch of things that were happening that we didn't, you know, think of today. And 10 years from now, there will be a lot more than those. You know, and I can tell you that in, you know, in 1994, uh, when, when I started working on the Internet full time, like I never saw Airbnb or Uber coming. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was just like so far in the realm of science fiction comparatively that it, it wasn't no, no one even thought to say, hey, do you think that'll happen? Uh, you know, yeah. and similarly, I think that with, you know, with both blockchain and actually with the advent of digital identity, that we're, we're going to be similarly amazed 20 years from now. Yep, no doubt. All right. Well, last question. Um, you know, we talked about uh, Android and iPhone apps possibly with some of your partners for the, yep. um, I guess, the vanity addresses. Uh, what else is happening this year that you think is likely to come out from Netkey? What else will people see? Well, I mean, for us, that's, that's plenty to keep us busy for this year. You know, but what you, what you yeah. are going to see is the, the last couple of years have really been about, you know, the first year really about building our products and the second year about building some of the first, you know, uh, internal implementations of those projects with our enterprise customers. 
as well as getting those uh, uh, projects released with our customers in the blockchain space. I think what we're going to see in 2017, you know, both with NetKey, you know, and more broadly in the ecosystem as a whole, is that 2017 is really likely to be the year that we start to see a bunch of these projects actually, you know, get into production and producing revenue for the, the you know, the, the companies that are having these projects built rather than, you know, a lot of things being kind of more proof of concept or piloty. Right. Okay. And, you know, last question, how do people interact with your products, start using them? What's the best way? Yeah, well, I mean, one great way is to just go to our website at www.netkey.com. Uh, others is to go and work with some of our partners in the space who have integrated our products into what they're doing. You know, in the Bitcoin world, that's exchanges like Bitso in Mexico, our partners Bit, who we had talked about, uh, uh, Unicoin and CoinSecure over in India, a number of others. Um, on the enterprise side, you know, some of you can either come to us directly at NetKey, um, or we have partnerships with uh, PwC Vulcan, with uh, IBM's Hyperledger Fabric work, as well as with Microsoft's Blockchain Initiative. And so, you know, you can either come to us directly or, or through one of those channel partners. Okay, very good. Well, Justin, thanks for the interview. Um, so, you know, it's definitely get, got some great thought behind it, and uh, thanks for your time. No worries. It was great to talk to you today. I'll talk to you later. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.